0: Who says the Bible has to be boring? On the contrary, the Bible is the most thrilling book in the world. It's the only book with an invitation to join the very narrative you are reading. My goal is to be like your time-traveling tour guide, taking you into an exploration of scripture in search of precious treasure, timeless, life-giving truths that inform us of who God is, who we are and how the story of everything really is his story. I invite you to join me as we learn to read the story, trust the story, and live the story, because there's no greater adventure than knowing the God of the Bible. I'm Brayden Brookshire, and this is Adventures in Theology. And we are on with Abdu Murray, and I really appreciate... Uh, him taking time to join us today as we are going to cover a really daunting subject for a lot of people, the subject of the Trinity. But before we get to Abdu, uh, I must say, uh, out of all the apologists tackling the subject, out of all the books I've read, I honestly can't say I've appreciated anyone else more in how succinctly and uh, in the way that you unpack the Trinity. I mean, Heck, it's one thing to read a 400 page book about the topic, but when you're able to do 11 minute presentation and just a lot of light bulb moments for many people, um, I think that's worth having. And so that's why I asked you to join on. But of course, before we talk Trinity, for anyone that doesn't know who you are, I would love for you to take a moment to introduce yourself.
1: Oh, great. Well, thanks, Braden. I appreciate that. And thanks for having me on the podcast, by the way. And we are talking about my favorite subject, uh, people often find it daunting to talk about the Trinity. I find it enlightening and um, actually exhilarating to discuss the Trinity um, in so many ways. We, and we'll, go, we'll get into that. That's not what you asked me. You asked me about an introduction. And, um, but that does help you introduce me a little bit True. because yeah. um, I was, uh, for the longest, uh, for, for most of my life, I was a Muslim who denied the Trinity, who thought that the Trinity honestly was one of the silliest ideas that Christians have ever um, sort of come up with. Uh, to try to explain God. And um, uh, as a Muslim, I was trying to knock the faith out of Christians. But I was, I was actually an equal opportunity faith knocker out of her. I wasn't just interested in, in knocking the faith out of Christians. They just happened to be low-hanging fruit in the area I grew <laughs> up in. Uh, so um, I would often attack their beliefs. And the Trinity is a place that I found to be where they were the most vulnerable because they had the least cogent understanding of what it was. They couldn't explain it either. And I would say to them, you can't explain it, then how in the world is it you try to defend it? Um, and why should I believe it? And all these things. But along the way, um, some people who knew what they were talking about, not just when it came to Trin- Trinitarian theology, but the underpinnings of Christianity as a historical issue, as a historical matter, as a scientific issue, and as a scientific matter in philosophy as well, they began to interact with me. And a, a nine-year journey uh, took me deep into understanding Christianity, much as I possibly could, given whatever intellect God has given me to try to understand this thing. Um, One, at first, to try to debunk it, and then two, to understand it, but then three, ultimately to embrace it. Um, And I often put it this way, Braden, is that it took me nine years, not because the answers were hard to find. They weren't all that hard to find. I mean, some things did come later. It took some time. But uh, sufficient enough answers for me to not only understand the Christian claims, but to embrace them as true, those took two years or so the nine-year journey happened because the answers were hard to accept uh, because there was identity issues there was you know cultural issues and other things that I had to wrestle with and I didn't simply want to give those things up but eventually when I saw God for who he really was that the being I was searching for and I'm sure we can talk about this later the being that I was hoping was true in Islam was actually true but differently characterized differently described and I would say accurately described in the Bible. And so my search was over in a nine year journey, finally found its completion when I became a Christian. Um, I'm trained as a trial lawyer, uh, which is to say that, um, you know, I love the way evidence works and how to marshal evidence to create an argument that's cogent, concise, and clear, and hopefully persuasive. Um, uh, and I spent uh, a lot of years as a trial lawyer and I uh, was doing ministry on the side, I have my own ministry called Embrace the Truth, which was basically an apologetics evangelism organization. Um, But along the way, uh, the folks at Ravi Zacharias International Ministries and Ravi himself took notice of the work I was doing and invited me to join them on some some trips and some conferences and some evangelistic endeavors. And over the course of some time, uh, asked me to join the team. I was delighted to do so, knowing that the opportunities that God had opened the doors for Ravi for Um, uh, might be the kind of things that I could use, whatever gifting God had given me to uh, impact cultural uh, influencers as well. Um, And that was true. I was able to do so, spoken on many a university campus, um, many a uh, hall of government, as it were, and in various settings at churches uh, to proclaim the credibility of the gospel and to fulfill RZIM's mission of helping the thinker to believe and the believer to think. And since joining, I'm now a uh, senior vice president with the ministry. Uh, my primary responsibilities though remain and always will remain speaking and writing uh, about the credibility of the gospel. Mm,
0: no, thank you for that. And I'm glad you mentioned some of the journey to Ravi Zacharias's ministry. I mean, uh, I think that shows a lot of credibility because it, it's just such a well- Um, respected ministry and obviously Mm -hmm. Ravi himself uh, building it uh, in his Mm -hmm. recent passing uh, carrying on the legacy that he started I know when I heard about his passing it was was one of those things that you are really sad and bummed because of all the great amazing work he has been doing up into the past several months and then Mm -hmm. at the same time you're like well you know what Uh, this is incredible to think about the journey he is now experiencing so
1: yeah, Uh, absolutely. Indeed, they are, because we are sort of thrilled for Ravi that he is face to face and in the presence of the Lord. He's loved and served his whole life and spoken about. Um, It's a funny thing, you know, uh, Braden. as an aside before we get into the meat of this discussion, Ravi was saved by the Lord at the age of 17. Literally, his life was saved from a bed of suicide, as Ravi puts it, uh, when he read those words, because I live, you also shall live, when actually they were read to him by his mother. So his life was physically saved, and his soul was saved because he embraced the gospel. Uh, and then countless times during his life, I'm sure he was physically saved in various ways, um, only now to be um, uh, brought in the presence of that Lord, uh, that who has carried him through the toughest times. And while he didn't deliver him from the physical cancer, he was suffering. He is now in a blissful, pain-free existence where he's just joyous. And so we do have that joy for Robbie. But I will tell you, I'm going to miss Robbie uh, mm. in the sense that I won't ever hear the new, um, the, anything new from his life, anything new from his mouth, this side of heaven. And when he comes in, uh, when we get to heaven and he ushers us back in uh, and says, hey, let me show you around. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing some new things that you've learned since then. (laughs) I love it. That's so so great. Uh, I'm glad that you've had a personal
0: relationship with him too. Well, yeah, so um, I do want to jump into the material for today. So the topic of the Trinity, a lot of my listeners have even asked me questions regarding this, but they're all generally around the same sort of question. And the question really, to get started really, is like, well, how do we make sense of this whole because a lot of Christians, we communicate this as well, it's three in one, one in three. So how do you go about helping make sense? And like you said, not just finding a satisfying answer, but having that enlighten
1: the rest of your theological paradigm. Yeah, and um, once you, you do have to start at the basics. Um, and oftentimes, I think what Christians do is they start off with, uh, and, and I'm going to say the word platitude, and I don't mean this to, is to, is to minimize that. But I think what Christians do is they'll hear things like God is one and three, or mm-hmm. he's the three in one. Um, and they'll repeat that, but they won't actually sort of take it in and say, well, what does it mean for God to be three in one? And it'll be more like, a, well, you know what? It's complex. It's a mystery. It's the kind of thing I'm not going to get. I'll just take it on faith. I'll say it when necessary, but I'll try to avoid it as much as possible in my discussions because I won't be able to explain it later um, et cetera, et cetera. The reality is, is that we, if we understand what we mean when we say God is three in one or he's one in one way and three in another way, the richer our theology will become and the richer our witness will become as well. And I think that that's important. So I think that if we start with this platitude, um, but then plumb the depths of the actual statement, we will come to a a better uh, understanding. Now what I mean by that is, is that when the, uh, Bible says, um, uh, that God is three and one, um, we we misunderstand this sometimes. And we use bad analogies. Um, and I always think about whatever I say that I always think of, that St. Patrick's bad analogy from yep. Trinity from Lutheran satire, which, by the way, is a great little way, a primer, to get at what the heart of the problem actually is for a lot of Christians. And so, Braden, what I would say is this, is that oftentimes Our misunderstandings of the Trinity, or better yet, our inability to explain it, stem from the fact that we are constantly saying what the Trinity is not, and we're Mm. messing that up, um, as opposed to just saying what it is, but we get it wrong. So when we say something like God is three in one, we have statements like, well, God is one and three, and we don't say the important section here is God is one in a particular way, and he's three in a particular way that's different than the other way. Because if we say that God is one and three in the same way, it is quite reasonable for a Unitarian, like a Muslim or a Jehovah's Witness, or a Unitarian of any stripe, or even a non-Christian or a a non-theist, frankly, to say, you just told me a contradiction. Mm -hmm. You said God is one and he's three, and you haven't qualified it in any way. So they're rightfully saying, "Can you explain how such a thing can be the case? um and if we don't we make a mistake so if we say god is one and three in the same way it's just simply wrong um if we say god is one person and three persons that's wrong If we say god is one in his nature and three in his nature that's also wrong rather it's important to understand what the trinity is actually saying um and what it's actually saying is god is one in one way and three in a completely different way and now, those things are related, but they are exclusive and it's important because then you'll see that it's not contradictory uh, to do that. And how I uh, basically uh, approach this is at three levels, depending on who I'm speaking at. I'll start at certain levels at certain times, but there are three levels, I think, that build on each other um, that get you to a very good understanding of the Trinity, how to communicate it, but also how to how to delight in it, how to delight in the Trinity um and understand your faith in a much better way so we started as so level one and this is what we'll start off with i think brayden is level one is it's philosophically and logically possible for god to exist as a triune being as long as we define triune correctly and that comes from that you know, god is one in his nature and three in his person's distinctions. that's the important first first step yeah,
0: absolutely. And as I want you to unpack that, um, I've taught on the subject of the Trinity at a few different churches doing a three-week different three week course on it, basically, uh, kind of like Sunday school setting. And I have indeed used the Lutheran satire video to illustrate <laughs> the issue. So I will have that linked in the show notes, or if you have not seen the video we're referring to, look at the show notes, because as Abdu said, it is helpful in diagnosing the problem.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so when we look at uh, the level one, when we get to the solution now, when we get to level one, um, we say, okay, when we say that God is one and three, we have to make sure we understand the the, di- the distinction between something's nature and something's personhood. Now, yes. the problem starts, of course, Braden, is that we have a, uh, a a a problem with sort of an unequivocal understanding of the word person or personhood. So, when I say person. Typically, what we think of is a human being, a, a separate, distinct um, being, which is a person. So if someone says there's two persons uh, conversing right now, there's Braden and there's Abby Murray, Say those persons are, this, are, are, are having a conversation. Well, that's true. And when, in that context, we mean two separate, distinct human beings. I am not you and you are not me. We are not each other in any way, shape or form. We're we're just two separate and distinct beings. Yes, we are both humans, but we're not humans in the sense that we are the same being. We are separate and complete instantiations of a human being. Mm. And, so, and so when we use the word person to, disca- to describe the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit within the Trinity, oftentimes our non-Christian friends, and frankly, even our Christian friends, can think that we mean separate beings altogether. So we need to understand what we mean by person. Uh, in this in this discussion, so if I say God is one in His nature and three in His persons, we have to take, make make sure we define personhood. So what I would say is this: is that the per- when 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 discussing something theological like the Trinity, person refers to a mind or a consciousness. So the person of the Father is a separate consciousness from the person of the son or of the holy spirit and so there's three distinct consciousnesses or three distinct minds and those persons is simply a way to have consciousness that interacts with other consciousnesses that's what i mean by personhood so that and it doesn't mean being it just means consciousness so god is one in his nature and three in his consciousness here's my example the nature of something is what it is. Something's whatness. So if I were to hold up my cell phone, for example, uh, and I were to say, "Okay, Braden, what is this?" Of course, you could say cell phone. You could say, you know, uh, pocket pocket-held computer. You could say a million different things. <laughs> communication device. All this stuff, right? But if I were to say, "No, what is its nature? What is its essentialness? What is the thing that it is at its most basic level?" And one would say, non-living object. It is a non-living object. Um it's say, great, that's its nature. Um, what now, though, I would say is if I pointed at a person, and i say, what is that? Now, that is a completely and totally valid thing to say. It, it, it of course, you know, sort of dehumanizes a human being. But <laughs> What is that? What is that? And if someone could say, well, that is a human being or a living object, but that's the basic nature of it. its whatness is living object or living thing. Um, and one could add a couple of other characteristics like, oh, it's a sentient living thing or whatever. Like a deer is a living thing too, but my nature is distinct from a deer's because I have a sentience or whatever it might be. But what we're talking about now in terms of nature is what something is. But then if I were to hold up my, 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 my phone and I were to ask you, well, who is this? And I don't mean like who's calling. What I mean is who is this object I'm holding on to? Um, it's a nonsense thing to, to ask you, because the, the, the phone has no whoness. It has mm. no personhood. Now, yeah, we give it names like Siri and Alexa and all this stuff, um, uh, and we sort of humanize these objects that we've used, incidentally, to dehumanize people. Um, but uh, that's another matter altogether. Um, but the phone doesn't have personhood. Uh, and in fact, if you talk to Siri for too long, she starts to repeat her answers, and you realize quickly you're not talking to a person, you're talking to an automated machine. Right. So it has, no, it has no personhood. So it's got nature, it's got whatness, but it has no who-ness. But if you were looking at a human being, you could say, okay, who is that? And if you were pointing at me, you'd say, oh, that's the living thing, the nature, called Abdu. And that is my whoness. I have a separate and distinct who So I share a quality with the phone. I have a whatness. I have a nature. My nature is living thing or human being. I also have a, a distinct and separate quality, which is my whuness, which is Abdu murray And that's based on my sentience, that's based on my ability, my consciousness, my ability to interact with the outside world. So we can already see. This is an important, uh, important thing, that something's what is not the same thing as something's who. Right. So that's important because if, when you're describing the Trinity and someone says God is one what in three what's, that's a contradiction. And you, would, and you would be right if you said that makes no sense. If you said God is one who with three who's, that would be a contradiction. But we're not saying that what we are saying is god is one what one being a divine being with three whos three centers of consciousness and because a who and a what those two properties are not the same thing they can therefore be exclusive and therefore god can exist in both modes of having a singular what and a tripartite who without there being a contradiction, which means level one is satisfied. that mm. It is possible, logically possible, for God to exist as a triune being without it violating any sense of our logic. And I think that's a valuable place to start because most people hang up at level one. They really do. They hang up at level one, whether it's Muslims, whether it's some kind of a uh, Unitarian monotheist, whatever it is, or even pantheists, um, uh, they get hung up at level one. If you can start at level one, you really have won. I'd say it's funny because level one, level two, and level three aren't one third. They're not a trinity in that (laughs) sense. Um, (laughs) They're not uh, one third the battle. Honestly, I fundamentally believe that level one, is three quarters the battle. Levels two and levels three are easy to get to once you get past level one.
0: Yeah, no, I think defining those terms are just absolutely essential because you're right. A lot of Christians go around saying it's three in one, one in three, but they're not understanding what they're saying by the one and the three, uh, the difference between being as you know, the essence or ontology of describing God as deity versus mm-hmm. the the personhood, the who. So I love the uh, one what and three whos. And then I even uh, I, I've heard other apologists and such, and I think this is helpful too of talking about how Jesus had two two whats and he was one who <laughs> he had right. the what of Jesus, uh, his deity
1: and the what of his humanity. And, yeah, uh, yeah. So. You, what you're pointing out there, Braden, is exactly. Uh, exactly right, is that when you use, when you understand this concept of uh, something's nature versus its personhood, it not only helps you with the idea of the trin- tr- Trinitarian theology, but it helps with incarnational understanding right. as well. So you can separate out the, how can Jesus be God if he's man? And being man means he's not God because the human nature is finite and limited and being God is infinite and unlimited. So <clears throat> how do you wrestle with these things? Well, same thing. God, Jesus is one who with two what's. He's one, one person sharing two natures. And because nature and person aren't the same thing, it's logically possible. It just goes now, to it?
0: show that yeah.
1: you, you have to, if you want to
0: really understand Christology and understand Jesus and his identity and be able to actually talk about this in meaningful ways, you can't separate the subject of Christology from the subject of the Trinity. Because at some point, it's going to cross over if you're going to properly understand,
1: for example, the difference between what and who yeah absolutely now the the hard part of course though is that there's times when when in defending the trinity you find yourself almost exclusively defending christology true uh, (laughs) I've i've seen debates like this where um someone has debated someone on the trinity and you find out that the christian has been spending almost all their time whether it's in their opening or their their rebuttal defending christology and not the trinity um which of course it's important you have to get to christology eventually but you're right, there's an overlap, but we have to just be very careful to make sure we keep basic things, basic things, and start with this idea of triunity, and then we can move to Christology. Because really, it could be the case that God could exist as a triune being Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but the Son didn't incarnate himself in Jesus. Because there are additional issues exactly. you have to deal with, with with the incarnation. But you're right, if you get through the Trinity, Getting to the Incarnation is pretty easy after that. There's additional things, but you do have to get, I, I think, just make sure you don't veer far off and get into Christology um, too quickly. It'll get there. Have patience. Yeah. It'll get there. Um, but uh, we just run the of danger of, of blending the two prematurely that's all yeah
0: now let's get to the second uh, level here and but before we do the reason why so many people probably get hung up on level one and if you're listening this might be you and that's okay to admit it but we try to compare god with uh, some other living being when there isn't one that has a triune nature because god is the only one that has a triune nature you're not going to be able to find well it's like in describing right. for example a fellow person or anything like that
1: now yeah. uh yeah go ahead no, I was going to say that you ubiquitous such a valid point, Brayden, because what, is it, what do people end up doing is they're trying to use analogies to help along the discussion. And many, I, I would even say most, if not all analogies, eventually break down. Mm-hmm. The simple reason of this is that um, we're talking about God now. Now, if if God exists, by definition, he would be the source of all being. He wouldn't just be a being amongst beings. He would be mm. the source of all being. He would be the necessary first cause or uncaused cause. And so therefore, he would be unlike anything in the world. We know of nothing that is self-existent and self-causal. And so you can't ever look at something like in, in, in creation and say, and, and say on all fours, God is like that because God is unlike everything. In the very idea of his existence, he's an uncaused cause. So nothing can be a full analogy to God. Yes, Jesus uses parables, for example, to liken God to things we can understand. But even those parables do have some, some, some limitations because we understand it's using, being used analogically, not completely explicatively. Um, okay. So I think analogies are dangerous. You know, the water analogy, the ice analogy, the sun analogy, the egg analogy. While they may be helpful to a degree, they end up leading us to false ideas of the Trinity. So I'm a big fan of avoiding them altogether, frankly. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, and so but what I think is important as well as this is that along the way, though, here's the problem. And a lot of Muslims would say this, um, for example, in Islam, God is very simple. It's very simple to understand. He's one in his nature. He's one in his person. He's an undifferentiated absolute. There is no differentiation within God whatsoever. Uh, And so it's easy to understand. Why do you have to go and get your PhD in philosophy to understand God in in Christianity? Just Islam, it's so easy. As if simple was a a test for truth. That's not a test for truth. The most complex, the, the, the most simple things we use in our lives have complex origins. And we know this. Energy. No one knows what energy actually is. We know how to manipulate it. We know how to store it. We know how to use it. We don't know what it is. So just because you can't explain something in a, in a simple form doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So, But here's my response back, though, is that if you're talking about the being for whom there is no earthly analogy or no even universal analogy um, in, 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 in his essence, and, but, you're, but now, and Muslims would agree with that, by the way, that God is incomparable to anything in creation, then why is it? that this argument, that God is simple and easy to understand because he looks a lot like us, why is that a valid argument? That would seem to to invalidate the Muslim conception of God, that he's easy to understand. Are you serious? You're telling me that the cause of all things is so easy to understand that you could define him in a sentence and grasp it? In fact, it would bother me. And in Mm. fact, I will tell you this, it did eventually come to bother me that the muslim concept of god was too simplistic and other unitarian concepts of god were too simplistic i'm not arguing against divine simplicity which is a different issue altogether what i'm saying is that their conceptions of god were very uh human centric he looks just like us and it seems to me that if our god looks like us maybe we created him in our image as opposed to the other way around
0: That's right. And I'm not going to spoil it because I'm sure you're going to get to it in a moment, but even God's attributes, some of them don't even make sense within a Unitarian uh, God, like God being the essence of love doesn't make sense within that framework i'm sure right. you're going to get that so i will well, review as we go all right uh mm-hmm. so a level one understanding the difference between what and who because otherwise we're going to get stuck right away by a self-contradiction of saying three in one one and three god is mm-hmm. one what with three who's the who's being uh understandable like as the place of con- uh, center of consciousness and having mm-hmm. that identity of consciousness okay now take us through to level two
1: so level two is, set, is the idea that it's biblically based. So you can say level one, okay, it's logically possible God exists as a triune being. But now the question would become this, yes, but is it taught in the Bible? Because even if you have a Jehovah's Witness, for example, who would say, okay, that's great, so it's possible, but it's not in the Bible. In fact, the word Trinity isn't in the Bible, which is an old saw, which is sort of an old argument that people have used for a long time saying, if it was so important to believe God is a trinity, why doesn't the word exist in the Bible? And the reason that it doesn't exist in the Bible was because it was coined in the second century, uh, much further uh, after, or second and third, bleeding into the third century uh, by the church fathers to describe the data they found in the Bible. So level one is logic, level two is Bible. Where do we actually see it written in the Bible? And so I do have a healthy or a, healthy, a helpful chart in my book grand central question i have a whole section devoted to the trinity and in that um that that book i have a chart that shows biblically how a couple of how three things are four sorry four things are true one that there is only one god the bible says there's only one god and i list a number of passages in the bible where it says that but the bible also says the father is god and i list every single uh passage i could find where the Father is called God and understood to be God. Next, the Holy Spirit is considered to be God. Um, And so we see the passages where, where the Holy Spirit isn't just a divine force, but actually personal. The Holy Spirit actually speaks and does things, can be grieved, and all these things. So the Holy Spirit has personhood. In fact, when Paul says, now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, that isn't saying, that you know, uh, the the spirit is like the force, like Luke Skywalker wields the force. No, it's personal. The Holy Spirit is a he. Mm-hmm. He's actually a person of the Trinity and interacts and does things and guides people into truth. Uh, John chapter fourteen and John chapter sixteen, for example, and other places. So you even see it in the uh, in the gospel. Of, uh, of Mark, where the Trinity actually has personhood and does something. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 10 and following, when the Holy Spirit descends like a dove upon Jesus. You see the Trinity there, the voice coming from the Father, the Holy Spirit descending upon the Son like a dove. And of course, the Father calling Jesus the Son in whom he is well pleased. Um, so you see the Trinity even in the earliest gospel. So it's not a legendary development. It actually comes in the earliest and what some would say, primitive, not in the sense of simplistic or, you know, uh, needs development kind of a thing, but in the earliest primary gospel, which is the gospel of Mark, depending on if you have Markan or Metean uh, pri- uh, pri- priority mm-hmm. as, your, as your view. Um, but uh, you see it in the, in, in the early gospels as well. So it's not a later development. So level two is establishing that, I'm sorry, then the sun. Then you have the sun being God and you have this... Um, Throughout all the Gospels, in fact, I can give countless examples where it seems like Jesus is making the point in almost every discourse he has that he and the Father, he and God share the same nature. I remember uh, during a dialogue I had with a a Muslim imam, uh, he was saying, it's only in in John, only in the Gospel of John do you see Jesus claiming to be divine, you know, John chapter 8. Uh, John, uh, you know, John 17, uh, other places where, John is, where Jesus is doing, John chapter 1, where you see this happening. like, no, you're mistaken. You look at Matthew. You look at Luke all the time. Jesus even says when he is greater than Solomon, when he is greater than Jonah, he's even greater than the temple. Well, so I asked my Muslim friend, who would be greater than another prophet? Would a prophet be greater than another prophet? No. It would be the one who sends the prophets who would be greater than the prophet. Who is greater than the very temple, the very site at which is the holiest uh, place you could be in the world? Who would that be? The creator of that temple would be greater than that temple. And we have all the edicts from the, from the Old Testament to tell you how to build the temple. Well, the one who describes the temple is greater than the temple. And then finally, you have in the, in the scriptures, where not, not just in John, but also in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Where Jesus says things like, He sends the angels, He sends the prophets. Who has authority to bring, to send the angels and the the prophets? Who has that authority? Only God alone has the authority to do that. And so I asked uh, this Muslim, I said, if it's true that only God can send angels, only God can send prophets, only God can, can claim to be the I am from everlasting. Uh, and all these things, you can see in all four Gospels, Jesus is God. In fact, Bart Ehrman, the sort of darling of Unitarians, especially Muslims, who want to pass uh, the Bible, Bart Ehrman said in a blog post not too long ago, that even he believes, now he qualifies it, but he does believe that Jesus is divine, de- described as a divine being in all four Gospels, not just John. He, described, he says that it's, he's described as a divine in all four Gospels. So level two is biblical, and you see on virtually every page of the New Testament, in some way, shape, or form, Jesus is either, either directly uh, defending his divinity, or he's implying it strongly. Yeah, no,
0: that's, that's really good. And I want to just jump in for a quick moment here. I think uh, one reason, at least people I've talked to, you get hung up on this issue as far as the Bible-suggesting for example, the deity of Christ is because they're so often looking for the word God or, you know, in the Greek theos to play, be placed next to the word Jesus, but so often, uh, predominantly, not just in the Gospels, but in just in all the New Testament literature, the word for uh, God is typically attributed to the Father. It's typically talking about the Father in that place, and context it usually makes that clear. Now, you do have instances when Jesus is called God, theos, and is. Uh, referred to as that. But uh, I think the people forget the Jewish roots of the New Testament and that uh, the personal name of God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, uh, translated into the Greek Septuagint and translating their background with the Greek word kurios, uh, really helps us understand that when Jesus is claiming to be Lord, and especially when Uh, The apostles, such as Paul, uh, were um, quoting Old Testament references where um, Yahweh was originally used in the Hebrew um, in place like that. Calling Jesus Lord, calling Jesus Yahweh is not a lesser title of deity. In fact, one can argue, how can you get a higher form of deity than being called Yahweh? So just maybe as a helpful tool for people to not always look for, hey, if you want to prove the deity of Christ, look for where it says Jesus is God. (laughs) Look for the uh, way through Jewish eyes of, okay, when is this attributing an action that only Yahweh can do? When is this calling a, a title, an identity? When is this being basically an attribute or a place that the Jewish audience would recognize that Jesus is being equated to Yahweh, the God of
1: Israel? That's right. That, that's exactly right. In fact, um, oftentimes the objection I get is something along the lines of, where where does Jesus say, I am God, worship me? And it's interesting because they oftentimes the objector will put it in that sense because they want it to be said that clearly in the language that they like. And so my response to that is this oftentimes is, wait, are you telling me that the creator of the universe has to say something the way you like him to say it? Mm-hmm. Uh, who do we think we are when we impose upon him this sort of formulaic way of doing things, as opposed to looking at a Jewish way 2,000 years ago, someone would have communicated this. In fact, if Jesus says, I am God, um, that that means almost nothing to a Jewish mind back then. Because first of all, Hellenization was something that was going on. They were combating Mm -hmm. all the time. Uh, The Romans, of course, thought that Caesar himself was God, or at least a God, so it would have meant almost nothing to them to have some kooky rabbi going about the hillsides saying, I am God. That would have meant nothing to them, but what got their dander up, what caused them to want to stone him and try him eventually for blasphemy, isn't that he said, I am God. He said that I and the Father are one, that he said before Abraham was Yahweh, I am, and Hmm. that he constantly said that he made himself uh, equivalent to God, that he could destroy his the, the temple and raise it up, in, or if the temple we destroyed, he would raise it up again in three days, meaning, of course, his own body. And he goes out, and he refers to himself as the Son of Man, uh, the divine figure in Daniel chapter yeah. 7. Um, so he does this over and over again. So when we say, we no, no, I will only believe that Jesus is God if I can find somewhere in the New Testament that Jesus says, I am God, worship me. We are imposing our language upon him, and taking, uh, by the way, a very dangerous position right now because we're dictating to God how he should describe himself. Who do we think we are? Mm-hmm. As opposed to seeing the very clear ways Jesus describes himself to his very Jewish, very monotheistic audience who would have understand every single thing he said. And in fact, I would even argue that the very fact that he was put on trial shows me that Jesus did make those claims, and they didn't believe him, but he did, in fact, make the claims regardless of their belief or disbelief.
0: That's really good. And uh, I want to get to level three as well. Um, And I will have your book referenced in the show notes below. So please do check out the book and get it to show support, but also to learn even more than you can in a brief uh, episode of a podcast. But before we get to layer three real quick, there's one more thing I wanted to mention is obviously there's so much evidence to, Uh, the deity of each person of the Trinity that we could get into, but that's for sake of time. We're just giving a very brief sketch. The other thing I wanted to quickly mention is that even in ancient Judaism, they had a concept of uh, a Godhead. (laughs) The idea of Trinity wasn't completely foreign and new and out of nowhere. uh, What a lot of my listeners probably don't know. Um, I think I've hinted to this on the podcast and I'm going to go more in depth at at some point, but Even in ancient Judaism, there was a brilliant uh, Jewish scholar. Back in the 70s, he wrote a book. Alan F. Siegel wrote a book called Two Powers in Heaven, and uh it really reflects this idea that not all jews held this but uh it was it was accepted and within orthodoxy uh even in the days of jesus to read the old testament and to understand that wait a second there's more going on here god isn't as simple kind of like what you're saying with the god of islam god is not so simple that there seems to be this two powers these two persons of Yahweh, kind of like in Genesis 19, verse 24, when uh, Yahweh in heaven rained down fire and brimstone from Yahweh on earth. And this, uh, these interesting verses that got rabbis debated, not everyone subscribed to it, but it was accepted until the second century when it was condemned as a heresy, likely because of how it provided a very helpful on-ramp, at least uh, philosophically, for Trinitarian theology. So just a little side note there. hmm Good one that's very, a
1: very good one by the way um uh, <clears throat> so level three goes to theological necessity so we have level one philosophical possibility or logical possibility level two biblical warrant in other words it's warranted by the bible to believe in the trinity and then level three is theological necessity that if it, if god is to be the greatest possible being which by definition god would be he would necessarily have to be a triune being. Um, And uh, so what do I mean by this? How how, how can I defend what I just said? Um, Here's how I look at it. If God is the greatest possible being, and I come from my my Islamic roots, right? So uh, I would often say um, Allahu Akbar as a Muslim. Muslim, Most Muslims say Allahu Akbar all the time. It literally means God is greater. So for a Muslim, the greatest uh, pursuit of worship is to worship a God who is the incomparably greatest possible being that can, <clears throat> pardon me, I had to sneeze there, if you cut that out, I'll start over again. <laughs> <laughs> no um, the, uh, for a Muslim, the greatest pursuit is to worship the greatest possible being, a being beyond which there can be no greater being. So he would be great in all of his great making properties. He would be maximally perfect in all those great making properties. Now for the Muslim, for example, Um, God is relational. People often think of Islam as being this non-relational God who doesn't love. It's not true. His love is quite conditional, but he's not an unloving God. He's just simply not an unconditionally loving God, but he's very relational. Every single chapter of the Qur'an, which is called a surah, every single chapter of the Qur'an except for one, starts with the phrase, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. In the name of God, the beneficent or the compassionate, the merciful. Compassion and mercy are relational qualities. God is often called off forgiving, most merciful, most merciful. Within the, uh, the orthodoxy of Islam, there's a thing called the 99 beautiful names of God, which are attributes of God that are his most beautiful, beautiful attributes that describe God in the best possible way. So he is the creator. He is Al Akbar. He is the greatest one. He is, uh, uh Al wadud which means, um, Lovingly kind, or the friend, um, you know, the compassionate, the merciful, the, the judge. These are all relational qualities, and uh, so I, I agree with every single one of those. Not all the 99 names, by the way, but I do agree with those that are consistent with the Bible. So here's the, here's the logic, though. If God is relational, and God is the greatest possible being, then God, as the greatest possible being, would need nothing else other than himself to exist in order to be himself. There are certain characteristics, which are necessary characteristics of God, that are immutable. They cannot be changed and they cannot depend upon circumstances to exist. So God, his relational quality is in and of itself who and what God actually is. He is a relational being. But you see, here's the problem. If God is the greatest possible being, you know, Allahu Akbar, like Muslims say, um, and like anybody who understands a true theology would say that the, for God to be truly God, he has to be the greatest possible being, then he would need nothing. It's sort of like his aseity, you know, uh, aseity is the doctrine that God is self-subsistent. He needs nothing to explain his existence, but also he would need nothing, I think, to explain what and who he actually is, except for himself. Mm -hmm. So here's the, here's, here's the rub. If God is self-existent and self-subsistent, he needs nothing to be who he is, and God is relational, here's the problem. Relationship always requires a relator and the one related to. Mm -hmm. You know, if you love, for example, you don't just love in a vacuum. You don't just love. You have to love someone or something. There has to be an an object. object. Exactly. Every single time, there's got to be an object to your love, even if it's a diffuse love, like I love humanity. Well, humanity exists for me to love. Mm. So there has to be an object of that love. Here's the problem. If God is a loving God and a relational being, um, as Muslims believe, as anybody who believes in a personal God would believe, the problem is if he is the only uncreated being and everything else was created, there has to exist a state of affairs in which God was the only thing that existed. And if he was the only thing that existed, then it would be impossible for him to relate, to be a relational being unless he created something. So he would need to do something to be who he is and to be what he is. He would rely on something outside of himself. And if he relies on something outside of himself, then he cannot possibly be a self-subsistent greatest possible being. He would need something, and a God who needs something cannot be self-subsistent. The Trinity solves the issue because God is one in his nature and three in his person. The one God exists in a state in which the Father, a separate consciousness, but shares the same nature as the Son and the Spirit, exists in relationship to the son and the spirit such that the father loves the son, the father loves the spirit, the spirit loves the son and the father and the son loves the father and the spirit. And as I put it often, and on it goes in the community of the Trinity from eternity. He never lacked relationship. In fact, he defines relationship, which is why the Bible does not describe, describe God only as loving in first John chapter four, the Bible describes God as love. God is love. And that verse makes sense only if God is a triune being, a being in community. Now, someone might say, Braden, well, why three? Why not 17? Why not 46? Why not just two? Um, And my answer to that is essentially this. It's Occam's razor when it comes down to it. So Occam's razor as a philosophical precept is that you don't need to multiply explanations beyond what's necessary to convey Uh, to explain a phenomenon. Um, So if I were to take a look at the three kinds of relationship or the three kinds of love, for example, uh, I have self-directed love, which is in some senses just when it's by itself, it's purely selfish. Then you have an others-directed love, which is like me to my wife. Then you have communal love, where there is a love that is directed to more than one person. So you have community. So in order to have all three kinds of love, self-directed, others-directed, and communal love, What is the minimum number of persons you need? You need three. And so you don't need four. You you can't have just two. You need three. And God satisfies those criteria in his triunity. So not only does he not need something, but he fulfills um, the very very, um, uh, sort of criteria for what it means to be a relational being. But it goes further than that, and this is sort of where I think the train really comes into the station of the, of the heart. And not only transcends the mind, everything we've talked about is more philosophical. But here's where the rubber meets the road, you know, or where the philosophical rubber meets the existential road, as it were. Um, why create us? If God has relationship, why create us? It certainly wasn't because he was lonely. Hmm. The reason he creates you and creates me is not so that he can have relationship. He already has perfect relationship he creates you and creates me and creates everyone listening to this podcast so that we can have relationship it is solely a self-giving gift he gives us the privilege of divine relationship he needs nothing and but yet he gives the abundance of his related, relationality to us and so that explains why we want crave protect and mourn the loss of our relationships because we are the effect and we are relational because the cause defines relationship, And that's incredibly important because this is consistent with the Christian doctrine that we are created in God's image. In his image, what as a master to a slave? No. Uh, As a machine that gets the universe working and then leaves it alone like the deists believe? No. No, we are relational because we reflect the nature of the God who defines relationship. Only the Trinity, I fundamentally believe this, only the Trinity makes sense of Genesis chapter 1 in that sense of us being made in his image. Only the Trinity does that. So I I think that there's, yeah, go ahead.
0: Just talk about a counter cultural way of thinking about god at least from an ancient perspective maybe today you know other people have their own things but like from an ancient perspective where the gods created people to kind of meet the needs that they did or didn't want to do (laughs) Mm they're kind of lazy or whatever here god yahweh the god of the bible triune self-sufficient the very essence of love uh, never had to learn love by or become loving by creating an object to love but eternally as a character and quality of himself is love because of his triune self and community created everyone out of liberty and freedom and joy and delight not out of obligation i just think that's
1: incredible and yeah (laughs) very devotional to think through it really is and it's such a contrast isn't it to all these claims that christian conceptions of god are copycats of ancient myths in what way Mm, Those ancient gods created us to serve them to create needs for labor forces, and they had to do it, and they themselves are contingent um, upon the ether of the universe from which they emerged. Well, the God of the Bible is the uncaused cause of all things, uh, who defines reality, but who's not subject to it, but is defining of reality and is subject only to his own internal consistency, and then creates us in that way. You're exactly exactly right. By the way... The Trinity is so brilliant, so brilliant. I could go on for hours on this, but really the Trinity is so brilliant because it actually makes sense of other fundamental core Christian doctrines like the atonement. I mean, if you think about this, one of the objections people often have is the, the atonement is at best a fiction and at worst a horror show because a blood sacrifice is required of a father killing his own son or whatever and these kind of things. Uh, and others say it's just a fiction. If Jesus is God and he pays the price, to whom is he paying it? The Father, but the Father and Jesus are exactly the same. So all he's doing at best is moving pocket money from his right pocket to his left pocket. He's just transferring funds. He's not paying anybody. It's all a fiction. If the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all the same God, then it's all a fiction. Ah, but that misunderstands the Trinity. The Trinity doesn't say they're all exactly the same. What it means is they have the same nature, but the Father and the Son have distinct consciousnesses, though they share the same nature, which means that when the son makes the payment, he's actually making the payment to the father who is not the son in personhood. And so an actual payment is being made, but the beauty continues is that the self-sacrifice of the son is one area of sacrifice, but the father sacrificed his son and gave of his only son to show his love for us. And so the Trinity makes sense of the payment at the atonement. In fact, I would go so far as to say, if God is not triune, then the cross is a useless fiction. Mm. But if God is a Trinity, then the cross actually means something. And what's the Holy Spirit's role? Jesus told us what it would be. He would come to us when Jesus leaves after the crucifixion and the ascension after the resurrection, and then bring to us a conviction of our own sin, a need for the son and point us to the son that the father has, has, has brought to us. That's why we pray to the father in the name of the son, through the Holy spirit. The Trinity is involved in every aspect of the Christian life. Yeah. That's so well
0: said. I'm glad you brought up how it relates to the cross. Well, we'll begin to uh, wrap it up and bring it home here. And, um, Man, I have really appreciated this conversation. I've heard you speak on this topic, but even on the parts that I knew that you were going to say, it just, it just, it's such a great topic. It's the more I understand this, you're right. The more I delight in it. I feel Mm -hmm. like this enhances how you understand prayer, how you understand the atonement, as you mentioned, how you understand creation as -hmm. being created out of joy and delight, not out of, oh, God needs something out of me. Like he said, no, he just desires to have a relationship with me, crafted by Him for no higher purpose than to 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 enjoy and glorify Him forever. It's just these kind of things to me. Once we can uh, utilize the help that apologetics can be to understand these kind of truths, become highly devotional. And so, I guess as your uh, the final thing I wanted to have you just quickly share on is, you know, how does this become devotional to, to understand the Trinity properly?
1: Well, you know, one of the ways in which devotion actually is expressed the best in in terms of worship. It's one thing to be devoted to your wife, which means that you are singularly faithful to your wife. But devotion doesn't necessarily bow down in worship at a human level. But devotion that sees the awe that is inspired Mm. by God. And this word awe is often used, I think, a little too easily. We use the word awesome to describe God and to describe the pizza we really like. Um, But the reality is our our devotion to God is so enhanced because you see, I cannot fully comprehend what it's like to be a tripersonal being because I'm a unipersonal being, but that he can in fact logically be and must be logically necessarily be tripersonal causes in me a sense of wonder. And I look forward to a time, again, where the Bible is consistent here, where it says, that eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, nor has entered into the heart of man, that which God has prepared for those who love him. That heaven where we get to delight and explore the Trinity for eternity and never be able to exhaust it, that causes us to read our Bible and see elements of the Trinity throughout the Old Testament and the New. Even the Shema itself. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your gods, that word is plural, the Lord is unified. He is the Echad. There's two words in, in Hebrew. Yeah. Echad means unified. Yachid means one numerically. And God chose to use the word echad so, uh, to describe himself. He is a unity, mm-hmm. even in the Old Testament. So what I would say is this, is that if you use the scriptures in your devotional and you reflect on the Trinity in the middle of your devotionals, you will see the hints and even the outward statements of the Trinity in the Bible. And you'll see him in your own life. And your prayer life will be so much more affected When you see and you delight in a being who satisfies everything we could ever want um, uh, in a God who is worthy, in fact, even more worthy uh, of our devotions that we can even imagine. Yeah, Uh, the
0: triune God is inviting us into share in the love and the relationship and the community of the triune God that he's had from eternity. The very eternal love that he has enjoyed, he's inviting us to partake in. Like, that's, that's beautiful.
1: So. Indeed, indeed.
0: Um, well, Abdu, thank you so much for your time today. Where can people stay in touch with you or follow you? I know they can mm-hmm. find YouTube videos of you, but yeah. anything you want to
1: sh- say in that matter? Absolutely. We'll go to rzim.org and you'll find articles and videos of, uh, of me and the other team members there. Uh, follow me on uh, Twitter is Abdu Murray, A-B-D-U-M-U-R-R-A-Y. Uh, Instagram, it's Abdu Murray12. You have to include the one two, otherwise you'll be following a cousin of mine or something. Um <laughs> so Abdumurray12 and on Facebook it's Abdu Murray as well. So you can follow me there. I'm active on all three social media channels. Okay. Yeah. Right. And I, I'll, I'll, I'll and I have my own and Braden, I have my own podcast now called The Defense Rests, where we oh. take a look at we take a look at claims for and objections against the Christian faith from a legal perspective. I use my trial lawyer training to basically say Apply the rules of evidence, apply the rules of procedure to the objections and the claims for the Christian faith and see if it holds water, the kind of scrutiny that it would take uh, in a legal action. And uh, I tackle, tackle a different subject every other week.
0: I am pumped. I'm going to subscribe to that as soon as we jump this, uh, jump off this call. Abdu, so it has been a pleasure. And for my audience, please give me feedback. I'm sure this has been a joy. Share it with others. Click on the links down below. And uh, we'll see you next time on Adventures in Theology.